Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and get it out and make your way to the book of Colossians with me this morning. Please go to Colossians chapter 2. Will you please go to Colossians chapter 2 and we'll be studying from Colossians 2 today. It is such a privilege and it is an honor to be able to stand before some of the finest people on the planet, the people of God in this place, and study the Bible. I always count it as an honor and a great blessing to be able to stand before people that I love who've been baptized into Christ and be able to preach the gospel here every single Sunday. In fact, for those of you who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, let me ask you a question. What verses do you believe What verses do you believe do the best job of clearly explaining to other people that what you did by being baptized is absolutely necessary in order to gain salvation? Do you by any chance believe that it's Acts 2 and verse 38? Remember, we read Acts 2 and verse 38 a few weeks ago in our weekly Bible reading. Remember there, Peter told thousands of Jews in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That is certainly a powerful passage, but maybe you're thinking about Acts 22 and verse 16, where Saul of Tarsus was told by Ananias to arise and be baptized, having your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. That's another powerful passage. Or maybe you're thinking about 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, or Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4, or Galatians 3 and verse 27, or Matthew 28 and verse 19, or Mark 16 and verse 16, where Jesus clearly says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. All of these passages do a great job in clearly explaining the need for baptism in order to gain salvation. But what about this as well? What about what the Apostle Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 2? What about what Paul teaches in Colossians 2, verses 11 down to verse number 13? How familiar are you with what the Apostle Paul teaches about baptism in those verses? I'm asking you this morning about Colossians chapter 2 because if you are a member of this church family, if you're a member of the Monte Vista church family, then hopefully you remember how last month we began a series of lessons from the book of Colossians, right? Remember last month we made a goal to preach at least one lesson from the book of Colossians every month for the next four months. Remember last month in chapter one, we laid a foundation for this particular series we learned that while we don't know exactly when the church in Colossae got started, the Apostle Paul seemed well acquainted with it. The Apostle Paul seemed to know a whole lot about this church. In fact, he actually wrote this church a letter while he was imprisoned in Rome, urging them to continue spiritually growing and developing and maturing in Jesus Christ. Paul told these Christians that a big part of growing in Jesus Christ involves a Christian growing in their understanding of Jesus Christ. It involves a Christian growing in their understanding and knowledge of the identity of Jesus Christ. It involves understanding that Jesus is king. 
that he is king over a spiritual kingdom, and he's also God. He is deity. And he's the firstborn or the preeminent one over all creation and over everyone who has been raised from the dead and who will be raised from the dead. And he is also the redeemer, the redeemer of our souls. Paul says that every Christian needs to grow and their understanding of who Jesus is. But not only do Christians need to grow and mature in their understanding of Jesus, they also need to grow and mature and their understanding of themselves. They also need to grow in their understanding of their own identity and what it means to truly be a Christian. Are you in chapter 2? Look at verse number 6. In verse number 6 of chapter 2, notice how the Apostle Paul says that being a Christian not only involves receiving Christ, but it also involves walking in Christ. Do you see that? Paul talks about walking in Christ. That language, walking in Christ, that Paul uses there is actually one of his favorite metaphors to just talk about faithful Christian living. It's talking about discipleship. It's talking about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ and striving to please him in every walk of life. Paul says that as Christians, we got to strive to walk in Jesus Christ. In fact, not only must we walk in Jesus Christ, but in verse 7, he builds on that idea by talking about the need for Christians to be firmly rooted and built up and established in the faith. In other words, as Christians, we don't need to have a spiritual foundation that is built on sand. We don't need to be lukewarm in riding the spiritual fence. We don't need to be the kind of people who are devoted to Christianity just on Sunday when we're gathered together to worship God. But instead, we need to be devoted to Christianity every single day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Being a Christian must be part of our identity. It must be who we are. And the reason for that is found beginning in verse number eight. In Colossians 2 verse eight, Paul, after he tells us to walk in Christ and be firmly rooted and built up and established in the faith, in verse eight he goes on to say, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made with our hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, all of our transgressions. I want you to notice carefully what Paul says in each one of those verses that we just read together. First notice how in verse number eight of that text, the Apostle Paul mentions deceivers. He, he mentions false teachers. He mentions false preachers and prophets. He says that if we are not careful, these people will lure us away from God by perverting the gospel. 
He says that if we're not firmly rooted and grounded and established in our faith in Jesus Christ, we increase the, the possibility of being taken captive by these people. We increase the possibility of being taken captive by philosophy and false teaching and traditions from men being binded upon us as though they are teachings from Jesus Christ. In the case of these Christians in Colossae, if you just go home and read the rest of this chapter, you will easily see that it appears that the false teachers and preachers and prophets that they were dealing with in their time were Judaizers. Chapter 2, the rest of chapter 2 talks about Judaizers. These people, these Christians, were being led astray by Judaizers, people who were trying to bind the Old Testament law of Moses on them, people who were trying to influence them to believe that in addition to obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, they also had to keep certain aspects of the law. They had to do things like keep the Sabbath. And they had to observe certain feast days and be physically circumcised and commit themselves to the dietary restrictions of the old law. The Apostle Paul urges these Christians to watch out for the deceivers. Watch out for the false teachers and the false preachers. In verse 9, he says that instead of giving attention to the erroneous teachings of people like this, you need to stay focused on Jesus Christ. You need to stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to stay committed to what you have been taught about Jesus Christ through the gospel. You need to understand that in Christ, he says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, in Christ, when we're in Christ, we have access to someone who is 100% God. He is 100% deity. He was 100% deity while he was on the earth, walking around in the flesh, and he's also 100% deity as he sits at the right hand of God today. Paul says that understanding the deity of Jesus is absolutely important because in verse 10 he says, In Jesus, in Jesus you've been made complete. You've been made complete in Jesus Christ. The Greek word for complete that Paul uses here is a very interesting word. It actually has a very interesting definition. It means to fill up. It means to cram full, to make full. Many of you here know what that means in a very practical way. Many of you know what it means to have a life that is crammed full. You know what it means to have a life that has a full schedule, a schedule that is crammed full. Maybe the trunk on your, in your, on your car is crammed full. Maybe your garage is crammed full. Maybe you're like Faith and you got a bunch of toys crammed full under your bed that should be in your toy box. We all know what it means to have things that are crammed full. And the Apostle Paul says that when it comes to being a Christian, well, we're crammed full as well. We're crammed full in Jesus Christ. We're crammed full with every spiritual blessing that God has to offer. We have access to God's forgiveness, a spiritual family, love, faith, hope, eternal life, and a relationship with God. We are complete, complete, Paul says, in Jesus Christ. The question, though, is, is how do we get into Jesus Christ? The question is, how do we get into this situation? 
where we have access to all of these wonderful and amazing spiritual blessings that come from God. Where according to what Paul says in verses 11 to verse number 13, the way we get into Christ is we got to be baptized into Christ. We have to be circumcised by Christ. We have to be circumcised by Jesus Christ through baptism. For those of you here this morning who have been baptized into Christ, and I realize that the vast majority of you here, you've been baptized into Christ. And for those of you who've been baptized into Christ, how often have you thought about that? How often do you think about that? How often do you consider the fact that when you were baptized, whenever you were baptized for the remission of your sins, when you were baptized, you went through a process of circumcision. You were circumcised by Jesus. You were circumcised by God. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's what Paul says in verse number 11. And I submit that that language that Paul uses there to describe baptism and what happens at the point of baptism, it is indisputable. It is undeniable. It may provide us with the strongest language that talks about the necessity of baptism and all of the gospel. It clearly shows us that contrary to those who suggest that baptism is not necessary for our salvation, it is necessary for our salvation. It is absolutely necessary for our salvation because Paul says here through baptism, through that, through baptism, God removes sin. God removes what we talked about last Sunday in that second lesson we had. This process of removal that Paul talks about here is actually called in the text a circumcision made without hands or the circumcision of Christ. Now, for those of you who were in the Genesis class a few weeks ago, do you remember how the book of Genesis teaches us that circumcision, the process of physical circumcision, is something that has been practiced or was practiced by God's people going all the way back to the time of Abraham. It goes back to the time of Abraham. In Genesis 17 and verse number 12, the Bible says that all of the male descendants of Abraham were to be circumcised on the eighth day following their birth. Their circumcision involved the removal of the foreskin. A male child had his foreskin cut off. This procedure was performed by men. It wasn't performed by God. It was performed by men, and it will serve as a sign between God and his covenant people. Circumcision, the physical process of circumcision was practiced by God's people. Going all the way back to the time of Abraham, and the Apostle Paul uses this physical practice performed by God's people in the Old Testament to talk about what takes place spiritually when God's people or when believers in Jesus Christ are baptized today. You see, when a sinner, when someone who believes the gospel is baptized into Christ, they are circumcised. They are circumcised spiritually. They are spiritually circumcised. They don't have foreskin removed. Instead, they have sin removed. They have sin cut off. 
They have sin put away and sin taken away. This language Paul uses here, this language he uses confirms a couple of different things. First, it confirms clearly to us that baptism is not for the sinless. Instead, it's for sinners. It is clearly for sinners. It is clearly for people who have reached an age where they have a moral consciousness. They know right from wrong, good from evil, morality from immorality. Baptism is not for sinless people like little babies. It's not for infants. It's not for toddlers. It's not even for children four or five or six years old. People like that have no sins that need to be cut off. People like that don't have any sins that need to be removed and taken away and put away. This language Paul uses here confirms that baptism is not for the sinless. Instead, it is for sinners. And it also confirms that when people are baptized into Christ, when I was baptized into Christ, when you were baptized into Christ, God really did take away your sins. God really did take away all of your sins. He really did remove every wicked thing, every wicked thing that you've ever done prior to baptism. He truly forgave you for every one of your sins. That's what Paul means in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse number 13. If you look at the end of verse 13, what does Paul say there? He says, having forgiven us of what? All, not some. Paul says all of our transgressions, no, no matter what we've done in our lives, when we were baptized, God forgave us for all of our sins, for all of our transgressions. Peter wanted his audience in Acts 2 and verse 38 to understand that when he told them to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's not saying be baptized for the forgiveness of some of your sins or a few sins. No, Peter wanted them to understand that God will forgive you for all your sins, even the sin you committed and killing Jesus, putting him on a cross. God will forgive you for that. In fact, look at what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Powerful passage in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and I'm looking at verse number 17. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 17, the Hebrew writer writes these words, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. When God talks about the sins and the lawless deeds there, he's talking about all of them. All of our sins, all of our lawless deeds, every bad thing, every wicked thing we've done in our lives, God forgives us when we come to him. God forgives us of those things when we experience spiritual circumstance. Circum, let me get that right. Let me get the, I forgot the word. Uh, circumcision. Ooh, that's hard. Y'all try saying that word 50 times in a sermon. Circumcision. God forgives us for every one of those things. It doesn't matter what you've done. Every lie you told. Have you lied before? God forgave you for every lie. You gotten drunk before? Guess what? When you got baptized, when you got circumcised, God forgave you for that. If you've cursed, if you've had sex outside of marriage, you got high on drugs, you lusted, looked at pornography, ugly, mean, hateful towards other people. No matter what you've done, guess what? God forgave you for every one of those things. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed in your life when you repented, 
when you were baptized, when you were spiritually circumcised, God cut those things off. God removed those, sin, those sins. Now, you may remember those sins. You may beat yourself over those things all the time. But God promises, I will remember those sins no more. When God says he's going to remember those sins no more, he means he's not going to hold those things against you. On the day of judgment, God removes sin. At the point of baptism, you know what else he does? He also goes to work. Baptism is not only called a cutting off of sins, but it's also called a work of God. When you go back to Colossians chapter 2, please, I want to show you something there. Because in verse 12, as we keep moving, after Paul talks about how our sins are removed or cut off at the point of circumcision, in verse number 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. I want you to notice a couple of different things there in the text. First, notice how baptism there is described as a burial. Do you see that? It's described as a burial. It's not as described as sprinkling or pouring water on someone's head. Now, I notice how our society defines baptism often, but that's not how the Bible defines baptism. In the Bible, you will never find anybody having water sprinkled or poured on their head and that being called baptism. Every time baptism is mentioned in the Bible and someone being baptized by someone else, it is always a burial. It's always someone going down into water and coming up out of water. In Acts chapter 8, when we get there, we're going to read about an Ethiopian eunuch who, after hearing the gospel, he's going to say to the preacher, there is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And the preacher will say, if you believe you can be baptized, and the preacher is going, going to take that man, he's going to take him under the water and bring him up out of the water. You see, that's Bible baptism. That's what Paul is talking about in verse number 12 of Colossians chapter 2. This text emphasizes how baptism is a burial, but not only does it emphasize baptism being a burial. Notice, secondly, how it talks about faith. Do you see that in verse 12? It talks about you're raised up with him through faith in the working of God. This text also emphasizes faith. When you're baptized, you got to have some faith. You got to have faith in God. You got to have belief and trust that God is doing what he promises when you get baptized. You got to have belief and trust that when you're baptized, God is taking away your sins. God is washing away your sins by the blood of his son. Here, Paul is emphasizing a burial with baptism. And he's also emphasizing faith that is necessary for baptism. But notice, thirdly, how he describes baptism as faith in the working of God. Faith in the working of God. That's interesting language. Wouldn't you agree? It's interesting because so often critics of baptism will say what? Well, they'll tell us that baptism is a work of men. They'll say baptism is a work of people. It is not a work of God. They will say there's no way that baptism can be essential to your salvation because no work of people or no work of men is involved in gaining salvation. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've heard people tell me that to my face. And while it is true that we cannot earn or merit or work our way into heaven, notice how in this text, Paul doesn't describe baptism. He doesn't describe it in that way, does he? 
Paul doesn't describe baptism as a work of men. Instead, he describes it as a work of God. He refers to it as a work of God because when a person is baptized or buried into Christ, God is the one performing the circumcision. God is the one performing the spiritual circumcision. God is the one cutting off that person's sins. God is the one cleansing that person, forgiving that person. God is the one adding that person to his church or his spiritual family. God is also the one providing that sinner with a clear conscience before him. When you go in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, please, I want to show you something in 1 Peter chapter 3. And do you remember how in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, Peter talks about water and how water was involved in the salvation of Noah and his family during the time of the flood. They were brought through safely by the water. Well, in verse number 21 of that chapter, Peter goes on to say, 1 Peter 3, 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. It saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a what? A good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice how at the point of the spiritual surgery performed by God, God cleanses not just our sins but he cleanses our conscience god cleanses our conscience when we get baptized how does he cleanse our conscience well he cleanses our conscience because through baptism he assures us that because of the death burial and resurrection of jesus we're forgiven we are washed clean by the blood of jesus christ we have been redeemed justified and brought back into fellowship with a holy God. Paul is telling us in Colossians that baptism is a work of God because through this work, God cleanses us. He cleanses our sins and he cleanses our conscience. And for every person here this morning who has been baptized for the Bible reason, if you are a Christian, a true Christian, a biblical Christian, this information here should encourage you. It should strengthen you. It should be viewed as the best news you've ever heard in your life. It should take away any doubts you may have right now in regards to your salvation. It should motivate you to stop walking around. If you're walking around in guilt, stop doing that. Stop walking around in guilt. Stop walking around in shame. Do your very best to leave your past in the past because when you were baptized, Paul said, God went to work. God went to work when you went down into that water. He removed your sins. He cut off your sins. Now, you didn't see him. You didn't hear him. You didn't feel him. But the Bible says he was working. He was performing spiritual surgery. He was placing you into Jesus Christ and removing every bad thing you've done prior to being baptized. The Bible says that baptism is a circumcision made without hands because during this process, God removes sin. And God goes to work. And let's just close by adding this. During baptism, God gives life. He gives real life. Go back to Colossians one more time, please. 
I'm going to chapter 2 again, and look at verse 13. Verse 13, the Bible says, When you were dead, when you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. This is similar when Paul talks about being dead here. Dead in your transgressions. This is similar to what he also says in Romans 6.23. Do you remember that? Romans 6.23, Paul says the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, judgment from God, separation from God. That's what Paul means here when he talks about being dead in your transgressions and in your sins. Before we came to God, we were dead. We were the walking dead. But when we got baptized, when we were immersed into Jesus Christ through that spiritual circumcision, God made us alive. God resurrected us. He made us spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. This goes right in line with what Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 4 when he says that when we're buried with Christ through baptism, we're then raised to walk in newness of life. We have new life. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, that when we're baptized, we become new creatures. Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, that when we are born again of the water and the spirit, we then become children of God. The idea of being born again is the idea of being made alive, spiritual life. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. And I submit that that reality should impact us in some powerful ways. For the people here this morning that I'm talking to, that I have the privilege of speaking to, who have spiritual life, this should motivate you. What Paul says here should motivate you to do your best to stay away from sin. Stay away from wickedness. Stay away from evil and ungodly behavior. Now that you are spiritually alive in Jesus Christ, do all you can to avoid becoming dead again. Don't let sin kill you anymore. Embrace your new identity in Jesus Christ. In fact, as a new person in Jesus Christ, understand secondly that that new life you have should be evident in your daily life. The fact that you've been born again, the fact that you are a new creature, the fact that you've been made alive by God should be evident in how you talk and in how you treat people and how you think. It should also be evident in your attitude and how you conduct yourself in the relationship you have with your spouse and with your kids and even with the people on your job. It should also be evident in how you worship God. And in how you think about sin and look at sin and in your willingness to be patient and forgiving and long suffering with the people in this room. You see, new life should be evident in our daily lives. Paul actually is going to talk about that in detail in chapter three. We'll talk more about that next month. But for now, I just want you to see that in this chapter, Paul is making the point that in addition to knowing who Jesus is, growing as a Christian also requires understanding who we are. It requires understanding that we're in Christ today if we're Christians. 
not because we're so good or not because of any works of merit we performed, but because of the work of God. Because of the circumcision of God. Because of the circumcision that was made without hands. That's what Paul is telling us here in chapter 2. And maybe there's someone here this morning and you say that I have yet to experience this circumcision. My dear friends, if there's anyone here who knows right from wrong, good from evil, who has morality within them, and you have not experienced the circumcision of Jesus Christ, you're in a bad, a very bad situation. You may have life in your body right now. You may be walking around full of physical life, but you are dead inside. You're on a bad path. You're on a spiritual path that's leading you straight to the horrors of hell. And you need to have faith in Jesus and you need to repent and you need to allow us to bury you in water through faith in Jesus Christ so that you can let God go to work by cutting off your sins by the blood of his son. And so if there's anyone here this morning who needs to experience the circumcision of Jesus, we're going to invite you to come to the front right now. We'll help you. Let's stand. Let's sing together.